That's in chapter 6. As I was pondering over this chapter and thinking over it, it was, it was on, I started pondering it on Monday. Y'all remember Monday? It was a scorcher compared to what we're used to. It was hot and humid. And, you know, just a miserable day until the sea breeze came in. And that sea breeze is a wonderful thing. You know, we all have experienced that on those really hot days. The wind is blowing from the desert, and it's just scorching hot. And then the sea breeze comes in, and everything kinds to cool down, and it's much more comfortable when we have a pleasant evening. And that is a wonderful thing. And as I look at this situation in in the life of Esther, I I thought about that sea breeze coming in. And what we're going to see here in Chapter 6 is like God's sea breeze coming in and cooling things down. It had been getting hot and wild, and things were falling apart. And now God brings in the sea breeze and calms things down. And so as we look at this so far, many of you haven't been with us during this series. So let me just give you a little bit of recap of the story of Esther. We find in the book of Esther that uh, it starts out that the king of uh, Persia, uh, Xerxes, or Artaxerxes, he he had a, a wild party and he... He gets drunk, and, he's, and he called for his wife and, and to, to come in and show off her beauty, and she refused to do that. And so he disposed her of the king's, of her queen job and says, you can't be queen anymore. And then he get, brings in all the beautiful women from Persia, and he chooses one for his wife. And it ends up being Esther. And Esther's a Jewish young lady, and she's over there as a slave. She were, was among the captives that were taken from Israel over to Uh, Persia or Babylon at first, and then it ended up being in the hands of Persians. And so Esther now is the queen. She hasn't told anybody she's a Jew because her uncle uh, Mordecai, actually her cousin Mordecai, told her to just keep it to herself and not broadcast that because Jews had been slaves and they weren't really the most popular people in the land. And so she said, you just keep that to yourself. And so all this is kind of the preparatory things that are taking place here so far in the story. And We found in the last chapter that once Esther was the queen, one of the things that God recorded in the scriptures for us that happened was that Mordecai, her cousin, this is an older cousin that had raised her as as his own daughter, and he he was sitting in the king's gate. Now, he must have had some kind of a political position there to be sitting in the king's gate. It wasn't the gate of the city. It was the gate of the palace. And that's where he sat all the time. So he had a job there. Some think that he may have been some sort of a judge uh, there in the the gate of the uh, palace. Uh, We don't know. But he was an important man, sat there in the gate. But he overheard two disgruntled servants talking about assassinating the king. And so with that information, he sent word to Esther and said, Esther, you better have this checked out because this guy and this guy are going to go after the king and they're going to try to kill him. And so they investigated it. Sure enough, those two guys were found guilty. They were put to death. And the king wrote it in the chronicles of his, of his uh, diary and put it away. And that was the end of the story. And things go on. Time passes. And now in, uh, the, we find it in the last chapter there that Haman, uh, as determined, he was going to kill Mordecai. He said, I've got to get rid of this guy. He's, he had already plotted to kill all the Jews, but now Haman, Haman wanted to kill Mordecai because Mordecai was the one that wouldn't bow to him, and it was really irritating him. And so he was re, uh, plotting this uh, plan to get rid of Mordecai, and he thought in the night, and during that night, the night before 
uh, he was uh, to go in and see the, the king. He plotted this all out in his mind. He thought, you know, I've got, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go see the king first thing in the morning, and I'm going to ask the king for permission. We're going to hang him on this really high gallows that he created. Remember, we saw that last week, 23 meters high, this tall gallows. He wanted everybody in the whole city to be able to see uh, the, the murder execution of Mordecai. And so he's planned all this stuff, but he's got to get the king's permission. So he's going to go in early in the morning to see the king. But God, we see all through this chapter, we see God's hand in all this. And God had it that that night the king couldn't sleep. All night long he had insomnia. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like insomnia. There's been times when I've, you know, been restless, you can't get to sleep, and you toss and turn for two, three hours, and then finally you fall asleep, and you kind of sleep the rest of the night. But very seldom does it insomnia last all night long. I remember one of our trips, we were going back and forth to America, one, one, one of those times, and uh, uh, we got a motel thinking we were going to sleep and catch up. All night long, I kept rolling over, looking at the clock, and, oh, I can't go to sleep. All night long. It was a waste of our Motel money. But anyway, the whole night was terrible. So the king had one of these kind of nights. All night long he couldn't sleep. And so he tried everything to go to sleep. He tried all, finally in desperation, he said, I know, let's try this. Go get those boring old chronicles and read me some of the boring chronicles. Maybe that will put me to sleep. So he gets these chronicles, and the one they chose, lo and behold, it was the book that had the information about Mordecai saving his life. And these servants reading it out, you know, here it is, you know, probably 3.30 in the morning, you know. And, and he's reading out of the book to the king and trying to get the king bored and get him to sleep. And he reads about Mordecai. He says, there was this time when the two men were plotting to kill the king. And they had this assassination plot all planned. And Mordecai, the Jew that sits in the gate of the king, he overheard this. And he reported it to the queen. And the queen reported it to the king. And they investigated it. And sure enough, these two guys were guilty. And they, they, the king hanged them. And that was the end of them. And then the king says, oh, what's the rest of it? Doesn't it say what we did for this Mordecai? No, it doesn't say you did a thing for him. Really? We didn't do a thing to honor him. No, not a, not, nothing in the records. Nothing says in the records. And this is the wee hours of the morning. And the king hears a noise in the courtyard. He says, what's out in the courtyard? I hear something out there. And he goes and looks and says, oh, it's Haman, your servant. He says, bring him in. I want, to, I want to talk to Haman. So Haman comes in. Haman came all night long. Haman's plotting. He's got his scheming ready. I'm going to ask the king. I got it all worded. I'm going to say it like this. And the king, I'm going to ask the king for permission to hang Mordecai on the gallows. And so he comes in before the king, and the king says, Haman, I got a question for you. What, what should I do to the man whom I delight to honor? And Haman, you remember him, he was very proud and haughty and cocky. And he said, well, who would the king like to honor more than me? I know what I'd like. I think what you should do, king, is you should get your, your, your best clothes and put them on him. And put your crown upon his head. And get out your favorite horse. Put him on your favorite horse. And then have your best servant lead the horse through the entire city and shout out the words, this is what the king wants to do to the man who he wants to honor. And the king says, excellent, excellent, very good. 
He says, here's what I want you to do, Haman. I want you to go and get those clothes, get my horse, get all that stuff, and I want you to do that to Mordecai the Jew that sits in my gate. He goes, yes, sir, king, I'll do that. He forgot all about his request to hang Mordecai. Now, this was interesting. This is, I mean, you read stories like this, and you can just see God's personality in this. Even though God's not mentioned in the book, we see God at work all through this time. And God has a definite humor, humor side to him. And he put this together. I mean, can you imagine it? Here, oh, Haman, he was dumbfounded. So he has to go through the entire city, pulling along his horse, leading it, and shouting to everybody, this is what the king wants to do to the man who he wants to honor. And he's telling everybody this all through the city. And when he gets all done and he's finished his route, takes care of the horse, he covers his head, and he goes mourning back to his house. Didn't want anybody to see him. You can just imagine all those servants that were sitting in the gate. Look what Haman's doing. He's going to leave Mordecai around. They're probably, they didn't dare say it out loud. They'd get yourself in trouble. But, you know, under their breath, like, look at that. They all knew he hated Mordecai. And now he had to take him to the whole city and parade him around in the king's royal garments on the king's horse and tell him all this. It's just amazing what takes place. And so Haman goes back home ashamed of himself. He gets home and his wife and family and friends meet him. And they, he tells them all that had happened. And they go, oh, poor Haman. He says, since all this has happened, Haman, you can be sure something bad's going to take place. This is not good. Something bad's going to take place. And about the time he's just starting to mourn over this and think about all this, and the, the chamberlain comes in and says, Haman, 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 it's time to go to the queen's, queen's banquet. You, you went yesterday. It's time to go again. Come on, get yourself ready. So they got Haman ready. And so Haman takes off, and that's where the chapter leaves us. Leaves us hanging. Next week's a good chapter. You get to find out what happens. But here's the situation. As we look at this whole thing, the sea breeze is coming in. The Jews were in hot water. It was blowing hot. It was, they, they were in big trouble. The, Haman had arranged it so that all the Jews in the whole Persian Empire, 127 provinces, were to be executed on the 13th day of the last month. All of them. And you look at the Persian Empire, we find that it included all of Israel. So that means all of the Israel, Jewish people in Israel and in Turkey and in Egypt and in, in, in Lebanon and in Afghanistan and, and all, the, all the way over to India, all of the Jews were to be executed on the day. It was a hot time. It was not good. People, the Jews were in big, burdened trouble. At this time. And then God brings in a sea breeze. The man who was causing them all his troubles now had to turn around. And the guy that he hated the most, he had to lead to the city and proclaim the king's honor on him. And we just see that. As, I, I look at that and I think, look at God's personality there. God is a God of humor. And God could see this was going to be a great thing to take place here. Old, proud, haughty Haman had to do this thing that he dreaded doing. And as we look at this this morning, Gaster says, well, what can we learn from that? Well, I think there's some very special things that we can learn from it that can be of great help to us. And that is, I want us to see the sovereign hand of God at work in these events. God's sovereign hand was in this. 
God was in control. And you know, as we look at this, we look at the situation with, with Haman and Mordecai and the Jews and, and all the, the situation there in Esther's life, with God being in charge and God supervising and God being the sovereign over that, God was in control of what was taking place. And we can be sure that God is also in control of our lives. I sang that song a few moments ago. Rejoice in the Lord. God never moves without purpose or plan when trying a servant and molding a man. See, whatever the circumstances are in your life, you're facing difficult times. All of us face difficult times periodically. Some of you are going through medical situations. Some of you are going through recovery situations. Some of you are, have heartache. Some of you have burdens. Some of you are, are, are having struggles in your marriage. Some of you are, are having all kinds of burdens with your children or whatever. But God is in control. Now, there's something here that we can't fully understand. Let me explain it right to the start. God is absolutely sovereign, and yet God gives man a free will. And how do you blend those two together? That's a tough one. I don't really understand, and nobody fully understands that. How God can be in complete control, and yet God gives man a free will. But God is an amazing God. Our God is able to do that. And though he gives us a free will to choose to to obey or to reject, he also has a hand over the whole thing in guiding it. And when we muck up and make a mess of things, God can take that and reweave that and turn that into something that will be beautiful to help him and glorify him again. God is an amazing God. And all he asks of us is that we humble ourselves and come back to him and say, God, I need you. I need you. And God will work in our lives. You know, maybe in your life right now that you're running from God or you're going through troubles or problems and you're not really giving God the glory for the things in your life. If you'll come back to God, God says, I will, I will meet your needs. I will re- rework your life. I will make you into what I want you to be to be, bring glory to me. So keep those things in mind as we work our way through here this morning. Notice with me some of the evidences of God's sovereign sea breeze. Number one. The king had insomnia all night long. Now, we ask ourselves a question, first of all, why that night? I mean, of all the nights, why that night? But it was a particular night. Why was it that one? Because God had his hand on it and said, that's the night I want you to stay awake all night long. That's the night I want you to get so tired that you're going to call for the guy to open up the books and read to you. That's what I want you to And so God had a particular hand in this. Nothing said about the king having a common problem with insomnia. Nothing mentioned of that. But we certainly see the hand of God. Why was it all night long? That's another question that came to my mind. I mean, I, there's been many times that I've had trouble sleeping. Maybe you wake up at 3 in the morning and you can't sleep for an hour. But I mean, to go all night long is not a real common thing for anybody. If you did that all the time, you wouldn't be able to survive very long because you'd need our sleep. So we ask ourselves, why? Because God had a hand in on this. You know, God kept him awake all night long. God kept him awake until the wee hours in the morning so that he would be, so all these things would come together. We ask another question regarding this. Why did the servant read about Mordecai? I mean, the king probably had stacks and stacks of these scrolls in his, in his library there where he kept all of his accounts of his history. Why that one? 
I mean, he sends a servant in there, and the servant goes, we'll take this one. It's the story of Mordecai. God had a hand in that. You know, in your life, you know, you can look at it and say, well, why, why did these things happen the way they did? And why did this? God has a hand in our lives. Yet all the things that take place in our world, God is still governing and has a hand over these things and leading and guiding. And it's hard for us to comprehend some of that. Commentary Joseph, uh, commentary uh, by Joseph Benson states this. He says, his mind, he's talking about the king, the king's mind being troubled, he knew not how nor why he chooses this for uh, a diversion. God putting this thought into him, for otherwise he might have diverted himself as he used to do with his wives or his concubines or the voices and instruments of music, uh, which were far more agreeable to his temper. All right, so he says, he's talking to the king. Why did the king choose to listen to these boring books? I mean, I can think of a lot more interesting things to do in the middle of the night if you can't go to sleep than listen to somebody read some chronicles of dusty old history things. And, but God had that chosen so that he would be able to do that. And he read of Mordecai's situation. And he read of how Mordecai had rescued him. Now, we have an amazing God. Nothing happens without him overseeing it. As I mentioned a moment ago, we, we have a free will. I can choose to obey or disobey God. And yet God has a hand over me and over you. And he weaves our circumstances together for his glory. We read in the book of Proverbs chapter 16, verse number 9, A man's heart devises his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Our heart will devise what we're going to do. We can say, I'm planning on doing this and this and this and this. And God says, yes, you can plan that, but I'm going to direct it the way I want it. I can cause problems with all your little plans. Or I can bless your little plans. Whatever God chooses to do, God is still in control, even though he gives us a free will. But the second evidence I want us to see here of God's sovereign sea breeze blowing in was that Haman came in the early morning to see the king. Now, as you look at this, we don't see all the little details here clearly, but as you dig a little deeper, you find some cool things. Why that morning? I mean, of all the mornings, why that morning? I mean, he could have, it could have been a week earlier, could have been a month later. Why that particular morning? God had a particular reason and he meshes all this together and he wanted it to be that time there was no accident with God God lined up Haman's passion to speak to the king with his sleepless night the two of them meshed together God did that on purpose we ask ourselves why did he go so early back in the previous chapter it says that he would go see the king on the morrow the word morrow there is an interesting word. You look it up and it literally means at daybreak. I'm going to go see the king at daybreak. I mean, that's not the normal time to visit people, you know. If you go knocking on my door at daybreak, you're probably not going to find too much to impress you. Right? But he goes and sees the king at daybreak. And that's 
we, we ask ourselves, well, why daybreak? Why was it that? Because if he had waited, just think, if he would have waited a couple of hours, the king may have forgotten all about Mordecai. Or the king may have called one of his other servants and said, hey, go do something nice for Mordecai. But Haman came in at daybreak, just as the king was getting done thinking about this situation he had just heard, and he said, then he speaks to Haman about these things. So God had all the timing in mind. Again, we see the sovereign hand of God directing these events. You know, our minds struggle to grasp the proper balance between God's control and our free will. We, I, I struggle with that, and if you de- ponder on it, you're going to struggle with it too. We can't fully understand how the two can be meshed together. But we read in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21. It says, There are many devices in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. We can have all kinds of plans. We can have all kinds of uh, devices, things that we're preparing. And God says, yes, but it's my plan that's going to stand. I'm going to be the one that makes the final decision here. So we saw that the first evidence of God's sovereign sea breeze is the king's insomnia. The second one was the, that Haman comes early in the morning. The third one, and this is a neat one, and that is that the third evidence of God's sovereign sea breeze here is that Haman gave a lofty suggestion for honor. Now you stop and think about it. If someone asks you, what do you think I ought to do to be a special blessing to Aunt Susie? But he didn't say that. He said, I've got somebody special I want to honor. What do you think I should do for them? What would be the first question you'd ask? Well, who is it going to be? I, I, I get, you know, if it's going to be your mother, I could give you one suggestion. If it's going to be your neighbor, I might give you a different suggestion. You know, got any tips on who it might be? He didn't ask any of that. He assumes it's going to be me. It's going to be me. King's going to honor me. <laughs> I already got to go to the dinner with his wife last night. He and his wife and nobody else. And just the three of us. That was awesome. And I'm getting to go to another one today. That's awesome. The king's going to honor me with something special. And he gets all this. You know, so part of the reason behind this is his pride and arrogance. But also God stirs him to say, that's it's, it's probably you, Haman. And he stirs him up to do that. Why? Because he wanted Haman to go all out with his extravagance. And so that Haman goes all out and says, all right, king. <laughs> He's thinking, what would I like? Well, first thing I'd like, wear the king's clothes. Whew, that would be cool. And then I'd also like to, you know, not just wear the king's clothes. I, I, I would like to be able to, uh, ride on the king's horse and have the king's crown. Can you imagine the crown of the king on my head? Whew, that'd be awesome. And then, then to make it really good, I want, you to, I want you to get one of your most noble servants and have him lead the horse through the city, shouting out this great message of proclamation of who you want to honor. That would be so awesome. 
I can't wait for it to happen. It's going to be me. <laughs> and he's all excited about this. And as he's thinking on all these things, and he pours out all these things, why did he do all that? God had his hand in all of that. God had his hand in all of that. For two reasons, I think. One is God had a sense of humor, and he wanted to see Haman squirm. But God had a purpose. It needed to be done then in that way. So God was in control of all these things. Haman is about to be to humiliate himself. And he's about he's about to make his miserable hatred for Mordecai even worse. And God is was bringing in the sea breeze for the Jews, cooling things down, taking the pressure off, relaxing things as things were going to get much better. You can just imagine. Can you imagine the joy and the relief and the blessing that the Jews must have had all through that city of Shushan when they see their hero, Mordecai, riding on the king's horse, wearing the king's clothes, wearing the king's crown, being led by no other than Haman, the one that hated them. Shouting out that the king wanted to honor him. All the Jews must have thought, wow, I never would have dreamed that would happen. That's amazing. You know, maybe God's hearing our prayers. Maybe God's going to turn this around for us. And it gave them cheer. It gave them joy. It gave them excitement. It was, we, we see the sea breeze blowing in and things are cooling down. They're feeling much refreshed. The final evidence of God's sovereign sea breeze here in this chapter we see is the king ordered Haman to do this to Mordecai. He orders Haman to do it to Mordecai. I want to read those verses. Verses 10 and 11. These are amazing verses. Verse number 10. Then the king said unto Haman, Make haste, and take the apparel and the horse, as thou hast said, and do even so to Mordecai the Jew that sitteth in the king's gate. Let nothing fail of all that thou hast spoken. Then Haman, then took Haman the apparel and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and brought him on horseback through the city, uh, street of the city and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honor. And Mordecai came Again to the king's gate, but Haman hasted to his house, mourning and having his head covered. God was really doing something here in this situation. We see God's sovereign hand. Why did the king choose Haman? Why didn't he choose somebody else? Well, partly because Haman suggested it. He said, choose your most noble servant. Well, who was that? It was Haman. He was the the chief servant. So Haman had a part in his own problem here. And ultimately, God put it in the heart of the king to choose Haman. God directed that. And why did it have to be done so immediately? You know, the king said, do this right away. Here it is, first thing in the morning. I mean, it's just barely daybreak. They haven't eaten breakfast yet. And, it's, and he's out there in the king's court talking to the king. Why immediately? Well, because God had a plan. God knew what Haman was planning. God knew that if he waited, that Haman would have been hanging on the gallows, or that Mordecai would have been hanging on the gallows if he would have waited. 
And so it had to be done before Haman could do all that dirty work that he wanted to do. It had to be done right away. From God's perspective, it had to be at this time. Now, as we look at this whole chapter, a skeptic might say all these events are just coincidences. It had nothing to do with God. However, it's far easier to believe that God was actively at work behind the scenes. Far easier to believe that. We read in Proverbs chapter 21 and verse number 1, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. I don't fully understand that. But God said the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. God's going to turn his heart around as the rivers of water. Wherever those rivers of water go, God can channel those rivers wherever he wants. God can address that. You know, even as we look at our world today, we can pray for Israel and say, God, please give the leadership their direction. They may not even, they they may not be believers in the Lord Jehovah as, as their Messiah. But God is still in control and God can still direct. God can direct in your life the problems you're having, the burdens you're facing, the struggles you're going through, the financial issues you're having, the problems with your family, the marriage troubles, whatever the situation may be. God can direct. God wants to direct. He wants to lead and guide and direct in our lives. As we look at this and ask, well, how does it apply to us? You know, whether our burden is sickness or our wayward children or financial problems or lack of work or injury or stress or, or marriage conflict, whatever the situation may be, God cares. God cares. And God is able to help us if we'll turn to him. That great verse over in Romans chapter 8 and verse number 28 that we're very familiar with. Some of you could quote it. He says there in Romans 8.28, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Now that verse is a great verse. But it does have some qualifications in it. Did you see there it says that it's all things work together for good to them that love God? It's not just for everybody. God doesn't say everything's going to work together for good for everybody's life. He didn't say that. He says, for those that love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. They've answered God's call to salvation. Now that makes it, it's a very important thing that we ask ourselves. Have I personally received God's salvation? You know, salvation is not one of those things that you get from by, by going to church. Salvation is not one of those things you get by being born into a Christian family or by being baptized as a baby or by being good or by saying your prayers or even by reading the Bible. See, when we talk about salvation, we're talking about being saved from the judgment of our sin. The Bible makes it very clear that we're all sinners. I sinned, you've sinned, we've all sinned. We've done things that are wrong. And our sin condemns us. God, being righteous, has no choice but to say, guilty, we're condemned. The prophet Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know? That's why when I speak with you, I don't have to wonder, 
well, I wonder if they're a sinner just like I am. No, we're all sinners. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And because of our sin, we need a Savior. We need God's help. We can't fix our own problem. Sadly, many religions have the idea that salvation is is uh, trust in Jesus and then trying your very best to do everything that you can to help it work. Or they may turn it around and say, do everything you can, and if you can't quite do it all, then God will pick up the part where you can't. That's not what the Bible tells us at all. The Bible tells us very clearly, there's nothing I can do. I'm helpless. I can do nothing to fix my problem. You stop and think about that. We can't even stop sinning, let alone fix our sin problem. I mean, if you say, I'm not going to tell another lie the rest of my life, well, you'll probably do it tomorrow. All right? Or, I'm never going to say another mean word. <laughs> you know, we do it again. We're, we're sinful in our nature. We can't fix our problems. That's why God says the salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace, God's grace, are you saved? Saved from judgment. For by grace, you're saved through faith. Not of ourselves. It's not something we can do. Not of works, lest any man should boast. God knows that if you could get to heaven or I could get to heaven by being good or saying our prayers or being baptized or taking communion or any other good deed, We'd get to heaven and strut around and say, I got here because I did this. And somebody else said, yeah, but I did this. And somebody else said, yeah, but that's not what I did this. We'd all be bragging about what we did to get to heaven. God says, nobody's going to brag when they get to heaven. Because nobody's going to get in by doing their good deed. It's only by the grace of God. Jesus paid it all. He paid the debt in full. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Putting our faith in Christ alone can save our soul. Now, folks, if you've done that, then this verse we read there in Romans 8.28 belongs to you. If you've not done that, the verse doesn't really include you. Because he says there, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. To be called according to God's purpose has the idea of answering God's call. God has called us to salvation. He said, whosoever will may come. But God doesn't cram it down your throat. God's not going to force you to trust him as your savior. God's not going to make you become a believer. That's something you've got to choose in your own heart. And if you have chosen that, you've become a child of God, you're one of his children, and then he says, all things are going to work together for good to you. Because you love God and God, you, you've received God's salvation. You, it's, it belongs to you. You don't have to worry. And folks, that's the truth of the matter is, if you know Jesus is your Savior, we don't have to worry about the troubles of life. Now, do we sometimes still fret? Yes, because we're sinners. But we don't have to, we don't need to, and we shouldn't. Because God's in control. It's going to work out all right. Your problems are going to work out if you'll give them to God. Your burdens are going to be okay if you'll give them to God. 
Sometimes God doesn't take them away. You remember the Apostle Paul, he came to God and said, God, I've got this thorn in my flesh. And nobody really knows what that is. It might have been a literal sickness or it might have been his eyes. It might have been uh, just people that are tormenting. Nobody knows what it was. That's not the issue. He said, I've got this problem. And he said, I'd like you to take it away. And God said, no. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. Now, sometimes we'll come to God and say, God, I've got this problem. Would you please take it away? I'm sick. Would you please heal me? I've got this issue. Would you take care of it? Sometimes God says, no. My grace is sufficient. I'll help you through it. But I'm not going to take it away. Whatever the case may be, we can know that God in his sovereign wisdom will do the very best thing for us and for his glory. And that's what this verse tells us. And as you look at the book of Esther, that's exactly what God was doing. God was showing himself powerful and mighty and overseeing all that was taking place there. And so this morning, two critical things I want you to consider. Number one, make sure that you can look back at a time that you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If you can't do that, you're still lost. God cries out to you, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. God says, Come to me and I'll save your soul. I'll give you eternal life. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he's urging us to come. If you've never come, I urge you to do that today. It's not complicated. The hardest part about God's salvation. Now, don't miss this. This is the hardest part. The absolutely hardest part about getting saved is humbling ourselves to admit we need it. To saying, God, I'm guilty. And I can't fix my problem. And I believe Jesus died and paid the debt for me. And I sure do want him to save my soul. I want you to forgive me and wash me clean. Make me your child. That's what I want, God. I can't do it myself. I'm depending on you. That's the hardest part. But if we'll do that, if we'll humble ourselves, anybody can be saved. It doesn't matter what you've done. You can't say, well, I've done some bad things. God says, I can forgive no matter what if you'll come to me. That is a wonderful truth. And if you've not done that, I urge you to do so today. If you have received Christ as your Savior and been washed clean, then you need to claim this verse, Romans 8.28, and all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. We know no matter what's going to happen in my life, what, no matter what happens with my finances, what happens with my children, what happens in my marriage, what happens, all these things, it's going to work together for good. If I put my trust in God and... and and get right with God, and stay close to God, and I love God, and I'm walking with God, God will work it out for His glory. Doesn't mean He'll take all the problems away, but He'll help us through. And so this morning, as you think of this humorous story of how Haman, the Jew-hater, had to lead his worst enemies through the city, proclaim His glory to the world, God did that to teach Haman a lesson and to bring in the sea breeze and cool things down for the Jews. 
And God can do the same thing for you if you'll let him.